following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Friends, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to continue our study here of 2 Timothy this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through 19 as our text, but um, I would like to start off by reading just from verse 1 through 19 this morning. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And coming to our text here this morning, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of the truth, or sorry, the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, as we look at our text today, we'll find ourselves having moved out of Paul's exhortation to Timothy to share in suffering, which has kind of characterized most of that first chapter and coming into the second And now we're going to see Paul once again calling on Timothy to stand firm, but not just in suffering, but as he faces those that are false teachers in Ephesus. Standing firm in the gospel, using this gospel as his basis and his firm foundation once again to not just address suffering, but now to address false teaching. 
As we look at this portion of text, keep in mind that Paul's central point is this false teaching. Let us not get lost in some of the weeds and let's keep our overarching view of the reality of he is addressing false teachers. We'll see that Paul uses a type of rhetoric this morning wherein he uses contrasting statements to bring out both the desires that he has for Timothy and the church and for pastors and for all believers even today, while also bringing out those characteristics of those he's deemed as false teachers, those that have gone against the truth. As we get into our text, I I invite you to both hear Paul's call upon your life to pursue godliness and righteousness and to heed the calling to turn from false teaching whether you're professing it or whether you're listening to it. Our world is filled with false teachers today. It's a tragic reality that has plagued the church since the first century, since the beginning. I mean, even in Christ's time, as he's walking through this earth, there's people that are questioning the truth of his words, questioning the validity of what he's saying. And then we see that Paul, as he's addressing Timothy here, is going to continue to address false teachers. And he's going to say there's specific men that he needs to stay away from. There's specific men that have caused damage to the body. And so as we look at the text, I invite you to both hear and to understand that this is a reality even today. We are not free from the burden of false teaching that is out there. And so it's incumbent upon us as believers to then battle against false teaching, to avert our attention to truth, to avert from all of these false teachers and to put everything that we have towards the truth, which is found, of course, in God's word. God's word is the only means of truth. And so anyone who isn't professing God's word, isn't proclaiming God's word, can be subject to the question then, Are you a false teacher? As we look at our text, I invite you to see four overarching points. First, in verse 14, false teaching brings ruin. Second, in verse 15, false teaching brings ungodliness. Third, in verses 16 through 18, false teaching, or sorry, in verse 15, false teaching brings shame. Third, in verse 16 through 18, false teaching brings ungodliness. And finally, our fourth point in verse 19, false teaching brings judgment. And let us start just by looking at our first point. False teaching brings ruin. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Remind them of these things. Paul starts off this section addressing false teaching by giving another imperative. We've seen that he does this throughout chapter 2. He says, entrust to faithful men. Share. He, he continues on and he kind of gives this remember Jesus Christ. It's imperative after imperative after imperative. And all of these things being active imperatives, right? He's giving a present tense, keep doing this. This is something that you must be going into day in and day out. It's an ongoing process. Paul is giving direction to Timothy. He says, remind the people of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, regularly. And he says, of these things, what are those things? Well, it's everything that he's been talking about up to this section, right? This is why I wanted to read the the full chapter. They are called to share in suffering. 
to be single-focused or single-minded as the soldier who desires to honor the one who enlisted him, as the athlete who desires to compete according to the rules, as the hard-working farmer who wants to have the first share of his crops, having a single-minded view of their task at hand. He wants them to be reminded to remember Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. He wants them reminded of this preeminence of Christ, the power of God's word, the salvation that comes only through Christ Jesus, and with it comes an eternal glory that we can long and look forward to. The saying is trustworthy, as it says, right, in Verse 11, if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. These are all the things that Paul is telling Timothy. Remind the people of these things. Keep it going, spreading this truth. But why? Well, simply, the fact is that they are truth, and so... The truth needs to be shared. The truth doesn't get held in. It gets shared. If Timothy and the church of Ephesus, though, were to battle against false teaching, they must be constantly reminded of the truth. Timothy must be regularly feeding on the truth, right? He has to know the truth so that he can share it with the church, so that he can combat these false teachers. He can't do that if he doesn't have an understanding of what truth is. It's like a, you probably have played this game, right? Telephone. And somebody says something, and as it goes around the room, whispering it from ear to ear, by the end, you end up with some random story. And it's because you didn't hear it from the source. The source is what's needed. And so he's saying, remind the people of the truth. Because if they don't do that, suddenly before they know it, they're falling into the false teaching themselves. So Timothy is to go forth and share these truths that Paul has given to him. Remind them of these things. This is the same thing that Paul will tell Titus in the next letter that we see in our Bibles. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus chapter 2 verses 15, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he is to remind them of these things. But Paul also gives him another direction, another imperative. He says, and charge them before God. Paul is now calling on Timothy to share in the way of imperative, right? He's been giving imperatives to Timothy, and now he says, Timothy, I want you to take my imperatives and give them out to the people. And he says, charge them before God. What does it mean, though? What does it mean to before God is God not always active is he not always present is this some type of we're going to call God down to be present in this imperative or in this command by no means obviously we believe that our God is an imminent God that is present with his people that he's active and living with his people Paul desires rather that Timothy keeps in the forefront of his own mind and in the mind of his hearers the simple yet profound truth that God is listening. God hears everything. It adds a healthy dose of reality, right? And a healthy dose of fear of the Lord. Timothy is to call to mind the real presence of God 
as he gives this command to the people. We see similarly that, like I said, Paul has done this with Timothy before. He says, First uh, Timothy chapter 5, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Chapter 6, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. We'll see this again as we look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Notice all of the times that Paul states this here, he is doing so within the realm of a charge or a command. He's telling Timothy, here is something you are to do, and I'm telling you in the presence of God. Timothy is to follow in these footsteps now and to say the same thing to the people. I charge you in the presence of God not to quarrel about words, which does no good. Timothy is to charge the church in Ephesus not to quarrel about words. The Greek word here, logomacheo, carries the idea of battling over words or contending over empty matters, debating, you could even argue. One of the most common practices of false teachers is to quarrel about words. Not for building up in righteousness, not for leading people to truth, but simply to be right about things. Simply for the sake of intellectual knowledge. Simply for just being able to say, I'm better than you because I know more than you. It's not about building the people up. It's not about leading people to truth, which will bring them to the salvation, to godliness, to the right things, but simply for the sake of their own pride. They banter about obscure things or obscure facts, but are not concerned with growing in obedience to God. So what does that mean for us practically? Does this mean that Paul is telling Timothy to tell the church in Ephesus and we should then take from this to say, never have a serious conversation or guide people to truth? By no means. Does it mean that Timothy should go back to his timid ways and to just avoid addressing falsehoods? No. When we look at the text in light of its overarching message about false teaching, we see a couple of ways in which this matters. One, The church is not to engage the false teacher as if having a debate. False teachers are not on equal ground. They don't have something that they can hold as their authority. God's word is truth. We stand on God's word. If we use God's word in its right sense, we cannot then debate as if we are arguing in the same kind of realm. Because we're arguing with truth. Versus a falsehood. Additionally, the church was not to use the same tactics. The false teacher would twist words and draw out applications that are simply not what the text says. We see this happening today. You'll hear a lot of famous prosperity gospel preachers like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland that will repeat from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, Touch not my anointed one. Do my prophets no harm. They'll use that and say, I'm God's anointed, so don't come against me. Lest you desire to be put down. Lest you desire even illness to come upon you or financial loss or damage to be done to you. 
Come not against the anointed ones. That's not at all what the text is about. It's, it's funny because the text is actually David singing thanks to the Lord for not doing certain things. It's a perfect example of drawing out something from a text that was not the intent of it. The church was also not to talk for the sake of talking. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, we're not gathering as a debate club. We're not gathering here as a group to just gain intellectual knowledge. But rather, we are the church. We are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Our call is to be all about God's word. If you want to have intellectual knowledge and gain in knowledge, you can go to some other church somewhere else. You can go down to the Unitarian Universalists, which will gather whoever wants to come, the atheist, the Muslim, the Christian, whoever wants to talk, just for the sake of knowledge. That's not what we do here. We gather around the gospel, around the truth of God's word. That's why we are here. Because this is the only thing that matters. This is the only authority that matters. This is the only thing that we need to know. Because it leads us unto salvation. Because it leads us into sanctification. Because it brings us in closer communion with the one who saved us. Notice, Paul says that quarreling about words does no good. It causes division. It causes strife and anger. It allows room for falsehoods to even continue to be shared. It leads people astray as our text continues. Notice it says, but only ruins the hearers. False teaching brings ruin. To give equal standing to false teachers and to debate them as if they have some equal authority to God's word is to bring the hearers harm. Unbelievers may be turned away from salvation because they haven't heard the truth. I can promise you that in churches where the falsehoods of false teachers and prosperity gospels and all these things that are being spread, wherever that is happening, there are plenty of people that walked in there with good intention but will never be saved because they're sitting under falsehood, because they haven't heard the truth their need for repentance and faith. However, false teaching doesn't just impact the unbeliever. It impacts the believer too. Brings people to despair, confusion, doubt settling in. Ruin, the word, the Greek word is where we get catastrophe. Catastrophe. Utter ruin, destruction, great suffering, damage. Second Peter chapter 2, he talks about damage or destruction when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, to destruction, to their end, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. We see that the reality is is. Hearing false teaching and giving heed to false teaching is utterly destructive to the point of causing eternal damage. Sodom and Gomorrah was not rebuilt. There was no redeeming of it after that. And similarly, false teaching can bring eternal destruction where someone then will never 
know the salvation that comes through Christ alone. So what we're talking about is truly serious. It is clear that false teaching brings ruin. It leads people on a path that is truly devastating. So how are we to respond, believers? Not to quarrel about words. We are to speak truth and stand on the truth. Our response as Christians is to call out false teachers. Call them, though, to repentance and faith. Because our desire is not that they just go into their own destruction. Our desire is to see them come to the saving knowledge of the gospel. So now that we've seen the effects of false teaching causing ruin, let us turn our attention to verse 15 as we look at false teaching brings shame. And he continues, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker with no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. So we kind of start to see Paul's contrasting statements, right? Paul says, you've heard what happens when false teachers are given quarter. They bring ruin to the hearers. But you, Timothy, you believer, you yourself, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Do your best. is The Greek word signifies being diligent, laboring towards, endeavoring, studying, doing what needs to be done, putting every effort in. But what are you striving towards? What is the endeavor for the Christian, and especially for Timothy and those in the ministry, to present yourself to God as one approved? To be one that can, the word kind of signifies ready for inspection. To be able to stand or be placed next to God, ready for inspection. So Timothy is being called upon to work diligently as to Come before God as someone who is seen favorably, that he might be counted worthy. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 For I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21 in the parable, right, of the, the faithful servant. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we see that it is a good thing for the believer to strive to bring honor and glory to God. It's the same thing that he had told them, right? About the, about the soldier. He says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to police the one who, uh, who had enlisted him. His goal is to please him. His goal is not to do anything but to bring honor to the one who has enlisted him. The result being that Timothy can then be a worker who has no need to be ashamed. This clearly implicates false teachers, right? Because false teachers have a reason to be ashamed. Sadly, we know that many do not. Philippians chapter 3, for many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and they glory in their shame with minds that are set on earthly things. However, Timothy 
was to be a worker approved by God and having no need to be ashamed. His life and his ministry was to be characterized as one who has no need for shame. Paul has already called him to be not ashamed, right? Remember in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We see the same theme coming true here. Not being ashamed of the truth. Paul tells Timothy he is a worker approved by God. And how does he do that? How is he to not be ashamed? He rightly handles the word of truth. Rightly handling gives the literal meaning to cut straight. Some commentators have talked about the reality of this being used about certain construction workers of the time. You couldn't make a table if you didn't cut the line straight. You couldn't do certain things like build a house if you didn't cut the line straight. Paul, as a tent maker, if he had cut all of his lines in weird zigzags and swerves, the tent wouldn't have stood. Or it would have stood, but then you'd have rain coming in and wind coming in and it would defeat its whole purpose. There was no swerving. There was no messing around. It was clear and precise, precision and cutting. He was to do that with the word. God's word to be, was to be rightly handled, was to be given clearly to the people and rightly divided. It was to be handled with care, but also with power. To be precise and strong, but with love in his preaching. He was, correct, he was to correctly teach the word to the people. Timothy was to give the people a clear view of who God is, of his word, of the truth of his word. He was not to swerve all over the place or pull out meanings to suit his desires. He wasn't to go and take First Chronicles and say, I'm the anointed one, so don't come against me. He was to stay to the text, stay to the truth, stay to what the Lord had already given for his people. And then use that to pull out the application. Use that to bring it to the people and say, here is what the Lord has commanded for you. To not do so would bring him shame. We've seen that false teaching brings first ruin to its hearers. We've seen that it also brings shame. Let us now turn our attention to verses 16 through 18 as we look at our third point. False teaching brings ungodliness. And reading again, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But avoid irreverent babble. Paul is once again using these contrasting statements and he's saying, Timothy, don't be like these false teachers. Avoid irreverent babble. Avoid means to shun or to be separated from. To be completely separate. When it's like you don't even want to be close to it. Avoid it. You hear this in frequent conversation. Avoid danger, Right? You'll see signs that say, avoid this route. Irreverent, being profane or ungodly. Babble, we hear that, oh, they're just babbling along, right? It's like empty words or idle talk. 
Timothy was to shun this profane and empty idle conversation. He was to avoid, to avoid being caught up in empty chatter that would be considered ungodly. But why? Does this mean he couldn't have just chatted about the weather or chatted about things that were going on? No, that wasn't the case. But there, were, there was certain conversation that didn't bring honor and glory to God. So why was he to avoid that? Well, Paul says, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Imagine that. Ungodly, irreverent, profane babble leads people to more and more ungodliness. Ungodly people speaking irreverent babble leads people straight into ungodly behaviors and ungodly actions. Let us not think that this is only for the immature believer or for the unbeliever. No, friends, we are called to listen up here. False teachers can bring people into more and more ungodliness. This is why it's so critical that we as believers, if we desire to stand on the truth of God's word, must be critical about what we are consuming. This is why it's so important that we are critical about the other preachers that we're listening to, because I know that through the week you're listening to sermons from different people, the podcasts that you're listening to, the books that you're reading, the music you're listening to. False teachers can bring people into more and more ungodliness. Think about the churches that we see out there. There's whole denominations that have just gone off the deep end. It started off as a a simple thing, right? It was a little argument over something that seemed trivial or not important. And suddenly, before you know it, they've plunged into the depths of ungodliness. There's whole progressive churches out there that came from denominations that at one time stood for the truth that stood on the gospel, that used God's word as their authority, that held it over their heads and said, we will never swerve from this. And then it comes to a point where they begin to take something that seems so small and so innocent. And they say, ah, we'll let that slide. They look at the culture around them and they say, well, maybe if I introduce more culture into my sermons... If I introduce more things that are relevant to the people, more people will come. Or, and, and it starts good, right? Because my desire is that they'll hear the gospel. But that's far from the case. What happens is it wasn't harmless. What started off as a small thing or a seemingly small thing turns into whole denominations, whole churches going down a path that is unrighteous and ungodly It goes down this whole path that we see in Romans chapter 1, right? Romans chapter 1 and verses 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's a verse that's frequently talked about this end times and the reality of individual sinfulness, but we see it happening in churches all throughout the land. 
giving credence to people who want to go out and have abortions, giving credence to those who want to participate in homosexuality, giving credence to those that want to go and sin and call God into account for what he's done to them as they think. Giving credence to saying the truth can be interpreted however you see fit. Giving credence to taking one verse out to make it about themselves rather than its proper context as the Lord has intended it. As we saw in 1 Timothy uh, briefly, belief directly impacts behavior. That was the overarching theme, right? Is as we look through the text, belief impacts behavior. So irreverent babble, when taken to its full conclusion, is going to lead to ungodly behaviors. And notice what he says, and their talk will spread like gangrene. False teaching will spread like gangrene. I'm sure many of you, if you've ever watched a war movie, have heard of gangrene, right? Or if you were in the military, people talk about it. It's this death of tissue due to a lack of blood flow or an infection. It's one of the most horrific things that can happen to tissue because it begins to die. And if it's not handled appropriately, it can just spread and spread and spread until death comes. The area becomes so corrupted that it's not even salvageable anymore. You see this happening in some of the war films or if you read about any of war history, men who had to have their whole foots cut off because gangrene had taken root. And if you didn't cut off the whole thing, it would just continue to spread. You couldn't just take a section out. You couldn't just treat it lightly. You had to just cut everything off. It had to be removed. False teaching is similar. It breeds corruption. It will continue to spread, appealing to the wicked hearts of man, till eventually the whole thing is corrupt. Therefore, false teaching must be addressed. It must be cut off. Paul gives a good example by the next line. He gives us a perfect way in which this is done. He says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Hymenaeus is the same guy that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20. He says in chapter or in verse 1, chapter 20, Among them, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's talking about people who have given up on the true faith, that have turned from it and have been preaching falsehoods. Philetus being one that is now named with him. They have swerved from the truth. Which means they've at least heard it, which is the saddest part, right? They've at least heard the truth, but did not follow in it. They probably heard it from Paul and Timothy. But then they looked at it and they said, I I think I'll go my own route. We don't know the full spectrum of what they were talking about, what they were teaching. But it says here, saying that the resurrection has already happened. We come to a little bit of a difficult text here, because what is being said Well, there's two forms of resurrection that we as believers are looking forward to or we know about, right? First is Christ's resurrection that's already happened. Everyone who stood with him in this truth knew that Christ had already resurrected. So for 
Hymenaeus and Philetus to say that the resurrection had already happened, they would stand next to him and they'd be like, if you're talking about Christ, amen. He has been risen. Since they were false teachers, though, we know that they weren't talking about that. If they were talking about the resurrection of the believer, then everyone would look at them and say, well, then why aren't you risen? If you are indeed the truth, then you should have been risen as well. So it seems more like they were probably preaching some sort of spiritual resurrection as the only resurrection and as something that had already occurred. This would mean that the end time promises were already in effect for the lives of the believers there. However, this was clearly not the full spectrum. It wasn't the full case. Because the church believes in a real physical resurrection that will come for the believers. There is an, ex- an, an, an extent in which as believers we are experiencing God's blessing in this time. But the full resurrection wasn't going to come at that point. By saying these things, they would have been attacking the very real resurrection of Jesus. If believers would not experience a physical resurrection, then this would mean that Christ had probably not been resurrected. And because they're so intricately linked in, te- in our scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Resurrection of Christ is intricately linked to the resurrection of the people. So if one doesn't happen, the other doesn't happen. The false teaching echoes into our world today, though. It's what we see with the, once again, health and wealth, prosperity preachers of our time. They may not profess that the resurrection has already happened, but they do profess that the kind of the outgrowing that comes from that. They profess that you can receive all of the eternal promises and all of the eternal blessings that come with the end times today. As Joel Osteen puts it so cleverly, you can live your best life now. These heresies have plagued the church since the beginning. And we must continue to battle against them. My desire, as uh, John MacArthur has said over time, is I don't desire to live my best life now. Because if I live my best life now, then it's not going to be good at the end. My desire is to live in humble obedience, humble submission to God and his word, so that I might live my best life for eternity. So what's the result of this teaching? He says that it is upsetting the faith of some. Hymenaeus and Philetus preaching definitely caused damage, as we saw earlier. However, it was also upsetting the faith of some. The Greek word here for upsetting means to overthrow or to destroy or to subvert. This indicates that the supposed faith that some of these followers had based on the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus was not a saving faith because it could be overthrown. It was probably people that had heard of Christ, were intrigued by him, and then said, oh, these guys are talking about Christ and let me follow them. But then there was no saving faith. So as soon as something didn't go right or went against what they had been teaching, they fled from it. It was overturned. It's exactly what we hear happening in multitudes of churches today. There's people that are using, as the term goes, Christianese, right? Using this language of Christianity. 
They talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They talk about being saved. They talk about the blessings and promises, the resurrection. They have a cross on the wall. There's all of these things that sound Christianese in nature. So it appeals to those that have heard about Christ. They maybe grew up in a church or grew up in a home where, well, we kind of followed Christ or we talked about Christ once in a while. However, what happens is they step into these false teaching churches, these sit under these false teachers, but they're not led to a truth that will save them. They're led to a falsehood that will bring them destruction in the end. So similarly to Hymenaeus and Philetus, there are some today that are indeed, their faith has been upset or destroyed. Any sense of knowing Christ or the opportunity to know Christ has been destroyed. And we pray humbly before the Lord that he brings all of these individuals out of these churches and grants them true repentance and faith in Christ. So we've seen now that false teaching brings three things thus far. Ruin, shame, and ungodliness. Let's turn our attention to this final verse, verse 19, as we, looking, as we look at our final point. False teaching brings judgment. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Once again, the contrast is set. God's foundation is set. But there are those mentioned previously whose faith has been upset or destroyed by false teaching. False teaching will indeed bring judgment on those who follow it or claim to believe in it. But thankfully for the believer, we can say, but God's firm foundation stands. What is he pointing to when he says his firm foundation? It's pointing to the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, remember we read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, the foundation of the truth. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 And Christ talking, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Don't worry, it's not a plug for the Pope. It's actually a true statement of the truth of the apostolic message that was going to be shared through Peter and Paul and all the apostles that would go forth, that would bring us here today to gather around this word as the staple, as the foundation of truth. And he says, bearing this seal, God's firm foundation, the church has a seal. What is a seal? The Greek word signifies ownership. You'd see these, uh, they would wear these rings back in the old days that would have a certain symbol or a certain kind of uh, a sign on it. And it would be the signet ring that they would use to press into wax. And that's how they would seal a document or seal something in their name to say, I am the one that has signed this. Holding onto that ring meant holding power. And God says, I have ownership over my people. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The seal is simply pointing to God's ownership over his church and over his people. 
The Lord knows those who are his, he says. This is the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. This is probably pointing back to Numbers chapter 16 and verse 5. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and who will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near. The Lord has indeed chosen those who are his. As we looked at last week, Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, those that not have been yet saved, right, but would be saved by God's grace. Those ones that God had already chosen to be brought to himself. We see this affirmed by Christ himself in John chapter 10 and verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John chapter 6 verses uh, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Talk about resurrection, right? It is clear that God has placed his seal on those that are, sim- that are his simply by bringing them to salvation. However, there's another part, and he talks about it here. He says, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Everyone who names the name of the Lord. It's pointing to believers, right? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that, mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one, uh, sorry, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Those believers will depart from iniquity. That's how we know believers are true. We see fruit happening. God places a seal on the church by bringing them to sanctification and holiness. Some have referenced saying that Paul, uh, Paul was also looking back at Numbers again, verse six, or chapter 16, verse 26, and he spoke to the congregation, to say, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of the wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. This sense of, once again, sanctification, being set apart, being brought out from iniquity, being separated from it. God's people will be separated from ungodliness. We see that this line is both a command and an affirmation of truth. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We see the command piece because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So there's the command to depart from iniquity. But thankfully, because of our own weakness, right? The Lord also gives us an affirmation. 2, Timothy, or sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13. 
But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the command and the affirmation stands for us. Depart from iniquity, believer. God is sanctifying you by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. However, for those false teachers, those that have not received the seal, the scripture is clear. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, talking about those unsaved unbelievers, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his false angels. False teaching will bring judgment. While it seems these prosperity preachers are living truly great lives, some even refer to themselves as prophets or anointed ones because of all of the blessings that have been given to them. Millions of dollars, large homes, cars, and private jets. The day will come when judgment and wrath will be poured upon them. This is why it is so essential that we not only address false teaching, but we pray for those that are under false teaching, that are professing false teaching, because God's wrath will come. There is an end point. There is a point where it will not, where it will not be held back any longer. There is a point where it will just be poured out in all of its power on those that have blasphemed against him on those that have failed to answer the call to repent and believe. So as we come to a close, I, I charge you, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus, do not quarrel about words. Stand firm in the truth of God's word. Continue to sit under preaching that brings God glory because he's preaching truth. For if not, it will truly bring ruin. Believers, be counted as those who have no need to be ashamed, but have believed and hold fast to the glorious truths of God's word in the gospel. Avoid irreverent babble. Stay separated from false teachers. Be critical of what you read, what you listen to, even those that you are engaging with. Our desire is not ungodliness, but rather godliness in all ways. Do not be afraid to address false teachers, even if this means telling someone that you love and care for to stop listening to what they're listening to, to turn them to the truth. As believers, you can indeed know that the Lord has called you unto salvation. You are his. You will not be lost. His seal is upon you. And so, depart from iniquity. Put to death sin. Seek righteousness. Do your, your best to present yourself to God as one approved. However, know that you have help in the battle. The spirit is active and live. The life of the believer has help because the spirit is there to convict and to bring aid as they battle against sin. Brothers and sisters, may we stand firm in the truth of God's word and stand against false teaching in our world today. Let us close in prayer.